Richard. Hello, Joe. How are we doing? Okay. Um, so, third sermon, going to take it up a notch tonight. We have a PowerPoint and a video clip. So, um, it's going to be a big time. Also, it's going to require me to be coordinated with this. Oh, yes, it's going to be there. That's so great. Um, so, that's awesome. Who here has heard of Natiawa River Monastery? Yes, I did. Die. Yay. Who here has been to Natiawa River Monastery? Yes, I did. Awesome. Die. Awesome. So, um, today, as you can see from the PowerPoint, um, I'm speaking about the Sabbath. Yeah. And um, there's probably not many places that I know of that are more peaceful than Natiawa. Um, so this week, on Tuesday, I headed up to Natiawa and I had been wanting to go there for about five months. Um, and I was really pumped. I was like, yes, it's finally happening. This is so great. And um, because I'm quite an optimistic person, I was like, man, this is going to be so awesome. When I'm at Natiawa, I'm going to rest and I'm going to write a sermon and I'm going to plan for Blueprint next year and I'm going to figure out where I'm going to live and I'm going to like do some grieving and it's going to be so great and I'm going to go for 24 hours but that's totally doable. So obviously all of those things couldn't happen in that time but I found the temptation for me was that it would be way easier uh, to kind of do the things that had structure or do the things which would be productive or helpful such as planning things or writing a sermon about rest rather than actually resting. So resting I knew would require me to just be. And for someone who likes to be busy and purposeful, actually slowing down enough to rest is A, scary because it requires you to, actually for me, I normally get a bit sad when I slow down because the things that I've been like on the go from actually like catch up with me. And it's also daunting because I don't feel like I've kind of done anything. And in a way, this kind of base metric which um, runs through my life and says whether my day has been kind of worth it is challenged. So I kind of had this sense that God was like raising his eyebrows at me like, you're going to go to Nasiawa and just uh, talk about rest but not actually do it. And was like, okay, actually, this, this needs to be a priority. Um, because I know the things that sit at the bottom of my to-do list don't normally get done. And so this is why I'm speaking today, one of the reasons, um, about Sabbath. So last year, I read this really great little book called Sabbath as Resistance, Saying No to the Culture of Now. And it's by Walter Brueggemann, who I fondly refer to as the Brugs. Um, and he frames up Sabbath as both this life-giving gift from God but also as a practice that we engage in as a form of resistance. And it's resistance to anxiety, resistance to systems of coercion in this world, resistance to the anxiety of productivity, and the things which can so easily enslave us. So for those of you who are at Blueprint Camp, which was about a month ago, we had Joel McKero over from Australia, and he used this phrase, Do not rush this. <laughs> and he said, step outside the hurry, because he's from Sydney. Learn to pause from your rushing around. Do not rush this. It was a little bit um, evocative for those of you who've been around a church long enough to remember um, the way that Rob Bell used to say, may you know. Um, yeah, anyway, this thing of do not rush this, do not rush this, is what we're invited into um, through the practice of Sabbath. So in order to understand Sabbath, 
and God's invitation for us to rest. We need to look at the narrative that was going on um, when God first gave this instruction to his people. To have a day, a week for rest, a weekly Sabbath. So who here has seen the movie The Prince of Egypt? Yes. Um, So today I like watched a little bit of The Prince of Egypt on, um, on YouTube and I was like, mate, Lyle Bay has a projector, we're yeah. going to have a Prince of Egypt screening real soon, eh? like this needs to happen. Um, so, so beautiful. Um, so for those of you who have either seen the Prince of Egypt or have read Exodus, and I feel like it's probably more likely people have seen the Prince of Egypt than read Exodus. But anyway, um, you guys are probably really biblically literate. Um, you'll know that it's a story of how Israel were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And Pharaoh was kind of obsessed with more bricks being made so that more monuments could be made to Pharaoh's greatness and to the gods of Egypt and to bigger and bigger storehouses to store up all the wealth of the Nile. And, um, Dan, this is the signal. Awesome. So great. Um, Yeah, there's this crazy thing in which Pharaoh has established himself as a god and who kind of legitimates his rule by this restless production of bricks um, for his wealth and security and empire. So all facets of um, the slaves' lives were consumed by this anxiety of the pharaoh, which was pressing down upon them. It created this economic system which pushed down on the people, and they were constantly expected to do more. So we're just going to watch this beautiful clip. Embrace it. about you but I pretty much can't watch that without tearing up when they have the, the old man's hand in front of the sun it's just like oh so full on um, so obviously the times were hard for the people of Israel and they were crying out to God the suppressed enslaved people they desired deliverance and God raised up Moses and then there were some pretty dark times which we don't have time to go into and then the Israelites escaped So they escape to this new physical space away from this rule of Pharaoh, but they're now just former slaves in the wilderness with no taskmaster. 
And God addresses them as a rescued people and he proposes this new socio-economic order. He gives them these new rules to live by, tells them who he is as the God that has rescued them and who they are as free people. So in Exodus, front and centre before the Ten Commandments come down from Sinai, is the narrative which tells the Israelites, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God is only known to these people through that narrative. God is the God of rescue from slavery. He's emancipated the people from the work systems of Egypt, from the oppressive rule of the Pharaoh. And the people are given new commandments. God says, or nay. God says nay. <laughs> Can you flip to me, please, Dan? Yes. Okay, oh, that was the point. Lots of bricks in Egypt. Now we're away from the bricks. Thank you, God. The Lord who rescued out of slavery says, don't fall for other gods. Don't fall into the trap of making gods out of things other than me. Don't commodify me. I know you've been immersed in this Egyptian system um, where the might of a god is known by how big a monument they have. But don't try and create images or relics of me trying to squeeze me into the shape of something you can relate to, like a cow or a tree or a bird. I'm this relational god of covenant. I'm a God that wants to connect to you and that connection supersedes anything that you could make with your hands and I will not tolerate being domesticated into a token. God says, respect me and don't misuse my name. And then God says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So Yahweh, the God who rests, rests is not a God of restless production like Pharaoh. God is saying he comes to rescue the people from a work system that they had in Egypt, um, a system that legitimated endless work. This God, Yahweh, is not a workaholic. This God is not sitting there with a clipboard restlessly waiting to see whether you've achieved enough. This God rested. Rest is characteristic of God and humans are created in the image of God. God rests and he wants his people to rest too. Not only that, but the type of system God wants his people to create is one in which all creation can rest. Rest is something God desires to be characteristic in all his creation. So after God created the world, he rested. And on the day of rest, he didn't come to micromanage the flowers or check on the geckos or remind the whales of what they were supposed to be doing. He trusts his creation to flourish in its being. So God's invitation for his people to rest is an invitation to step away from the anxiety of trying to control things and to trust in the sureness of the creator and the goodness of his creation.
God is here revealed as a God of mercy, of steadfast love and faithfulness, who makes the basis of his commitment to his people relationship, on covenant, not on achievements or commodities. This God's invitation into rest is not dependent on how many bricks you've made. Sabbath is this discipline and this gift, and it doesn't have anything to do with whether you've met your KPIs or your work targets. The Sabbath commandment is given to people to remind them that they are finite. They could not constantly be on the go. There are limits to their energy. And to honour these limitations is to honour the infinite God who himself both worked and rested. Um, I'm going to read to you directly from the group. So, story time. This is such a great book. Seriously, you should get it from the library. There had been no Sabbath in Egypt, no work stoppage, no work stoppage for Pharaoh who worked day and night to stay atop the pyramid. There had been no work stoppage for slaves because they had to gather straw during their time off, no work stoppage of anybody in the Egyptian system because frantic productivity drove the entire system. And now Yahweh nullifies the entire system of anxious production. There are limits to how much and how long slaves must produce bricks. There are, of course, limits to how much food Pharaoh food can how much food Pharaoh can store and consume and administer. The limit is set by the weekly work pause that breaks the production cycle, and those who participate in it break the anxiety cycle. They are invited to awareness that life does not consist in frantic production and consumption that reduces everyone else to a threat or a competitor. And as the work stoppage permits a waning of anxiety, so energy is redeployed to the neighbourhood. The odd insistence of the God of Sinai is to counter anxious productivity with committed neighbourliness. So the people of Israel are told that their new identity is. They are not slaves anymore. And they're also not to enslave others. The Bruges says such divine rest serves to delegitimate and dismantle the endless restlessness sanctioned by other gods. And we could think for a moment about the pharaohs that we know today who sanction constant consumption the constant drive for outcomes, <coughs> systems of endless productivity that push us to produce, 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 consume, consume, consume. We can think about the slavery that exists today. An easy example is the fast fashion industry and the terrible work conditions of people around the world who are made to work for modern day pharaohs. And all of us have some experience of this cycle of violence where the slave becomes the pharaoh, where the bullied becomes the bully. When you've been treated a little bit harshly and so you end up kind of just treating someone else a little bit harshly and that keeps getting moved around. At Sinai, God in compassion sees the Israelites and says, my dear people, don't oppress people. Remember, when you were oppressed in Egypt, remember that time and I'm the God that rescued you out of that. Don't become the bullied people who perpetuate the bullying. 
God knew that if the Israelites were not given a different way of being, the terrible reality is, is that they could go from being slaves to becoming the Pharaoh in their own way. In different parts of their lives, in our lives, we could be the slave in one place and the Pharaoh in another. This drives a cycle of relational dysfunction which stops us from loving our neighbour. Cool. So you can see here that the next, um, so the call to rest is the fourth commandment and then the rest of the commandments after that are calls to love your neighbour in kind of specific ways. So we know that God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt and that in the coming of Jesus, God rescued us from slavery in new ways and invited us into new ways. And what Brueggemann suggests is that Sabbath is sort of sits in the middle of um, our understanding of who God is before um, these specific commandments around how to love our neighbour. It's kind of this pathway into how we can learn to love our neighbour. Sabbath matters because in God's kingdom, the economy of the kingdom is based on what Brueggemann calls an economy of neighbourliness. It's not about economic productivity, not of systems which create socially bound relationships which reduces neighbours to slaves and threats, rivals and competitors. So for those of you who were here a few weeks ago, Scott spoke about how we have to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbour. And Jesus defined these as the greatest of all commandments. And we can see here that the call to Sabbath is a way of us sort of participating and being enabled um, to live out those commandments, to live out our love of God and to live out our, our love of neighbour. The commandment to Sabbath bridges these two big calls. And it helps us to understand who God is, to conceptualise that our God is a God of rest. And who we are, beloved children whose worth is in our being, not in our doing. And who our neighbour is, we're not an enemy, not competition in the market, not someone that you need to lock your doors from in case they come in and steal your stuff. Sabbath is this linchpin practice that enables us to love God and love our neighbour. It is a day that calls us to remember who and what our work is for and to remember what matters most. So if we practice rest, remembering our identity as human beings, not human doings, we're able to see others in the same way. Not just seeing others as a means to our own ends. We can create space for others to rest. And we can take the energy that the world would suggest should be used um, to make more bricks and we can use it for the good and love of our neighbour. Oops, you dropped some words. Thanks, Nathan. Yeah. As the people of God are called out of slavery, God speaks clearly that yes, there is a time for work, but then, in the middle of it, there is a time for rest. So later in Exodus, when some more bad times have gone down, um, God reiterates this call to Sabbath and says, Six days you shall labour, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the ploughing season and harvest, you must rest. Even when you're busy, even when you're in the middle of your work, you are to pause and keep the Sabbath. Lauren and I were having a conversation about um, how busy life is this week. And um, 
Lauren will be able to share with anyone that wants to ask her about the long journey she's been on trying to figure out Sabbath. Um, but we are talking about how life kind of quickly can rush by. And then she was just like, yeah, that's why you have to have good rhythms of rest. And it kind of struck me in this different way that the practice of Sabbath kind of interjects into the middle of this. Um, I had been thinking about rest as this thing that I earn at the end of doing the things. Um, but that actually it's the thing that sustains you all the way through and that it's probably not going to be convenient, which is why I think Bergman calls this book Sabbath as Resistance. Um, yeah. There's this great bit. Um, oh, there's so many great books in this book. Just, yeah, just read it. Um, <laughs> so um, God knows that if we save up Sabbath as something when all the rest of our work is done, Likely is not, it's not going to happen. Sabbath is to be kept as a practice of resistance to the pressure that comes down upon us to say, do more, be more, you're not enough. It is a discipline and a gift that sustains and transforms us and creates space for the love of God and the love of our neighbour, even in the middle of the busyness. So still... Um, Thousands of years later, Jesus knew our penchant for anxiety and worry and what, um, those, how those things drive us to want to control things and become hyperproductive. And we read in Luke's Gospel, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, or what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the sparrows, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labour or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow it's gone. How much more will he clothe you of little faith? Don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the rest of the world runs after such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. So may we know that the invitation into the kingdom is one of both work and rest, where our identity in God's God is as God's creation. That we are the creatures of God. We are the creation of God. He gave us the ability to create, um, but there's a time for rest from that. Our worth, our worth is guaranteed in that revelation. And that that should be cause for joy to overflow. I'm going to read another little, little bit of books. Um, in the Prince of Egypt, there's, and also in Exodus, um, there's the character of Miriam, and um, the women of Israel um, kind of didn't have time to like dance or sing or celebrate, nor did the men, um, but we hear about like the dancing and the joy upon Israel's emancipation their freedom that God's given them. Um, so, 
Brueggemann's talking about how we as Christians um, in the modern era are much inured of Pharaoh's system. We find it really hard to practice Sabbath. For this reason, the departure into restfulness is both urgent and difficult. For our motors are set to run at brick-making speed. To cease, even for a time, the anxious striving for more bricks is to find ourselves with a light burden and an easy yoke. It is now, as then, enough to permit dancing and singing into an alternative life. We're going to pray a minute. God, thank you for the joyful freedom that you offer us and for your instructions into a way of life that enables us to love you and to love our neighbour. And I just pray, Lord, for anyone here who desires more of your peacemaking and freedom-making spirit um, to bring peace and healing and freedom from slavery God, we just offer that to you. God, I just pray for anyone here that um, is, needs to be reminded that they are loved in their being, not just in their doing. For anyone who needs courage to choose Sabbath, who needs strength to say no to the things that would come and harass us into busyness. Thank you, God, that you know what we need. Thank you that you have made a way. Thank you that um, you don't tire of us, God, but you're really delighted. Delighted to give us good gifts. We just want to praise you for who you are.